Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another episode of Podcasting Greatness here on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and who knows what other platforms my podcast has drifted onto or infected, depending on how you might look at what I have to say these days. Anyway, welcome to the show. This week we're doing something pretty different, and I'm actually a little excited about it because I have a special guest. Uh, her name is Erin Lewis, and she has written a book called Expose Yourself, and she used to work in the uh, sex industry as a stripper. And she wrote this book about her kind of uh, experiences, life story, journey into skepticism and critical thinking and how she has applied that in different parts of her life and to this, and even to thoughts and ideas about the industry that she worked in from a critical standpoint. Because let's face it, there is all kinds of controversy, especially in the United States, surrounding the topic and subject of sex and the sex industry, the professional industry of this. And um, of course, the United States has a sort of I don't know if it's accurate, really, to, to position it this way, but I'll say a sort of underlying Christian morality base that sort of rears its ugly head a little too often uh, in terms of the ideas that these that this group of people believe that they can enforce on non-Christians or non-believers because they're right and everybody else is kind of wrong. And obviously, that's not all Christian. So let's not you know, let's not go too crazy with this. But this does exist in our culture, and it's existed for from the beginning because this country was founded by people who were leaving <laughs> religious situations for religious persecution and founding their own kind of religious extremist groups here. So it's kind of traditional in America to to kind of have this happening. Anyway, let's go ahead and get to it. Aaron, welcome to my show. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, happy to. I found your book interesting. I got I admit it, I didn't finish it. I got about up to about chapter eight or so, and it was absolutely fascinating. I thought you did a great job with it. Was that the first time you've written things, or is that or have you been doing stories or shorts or anything like that before that? I actually have two books uh before that. My ah. first book was uh came out in 2015. And it is my memoir. It's called Dirty Money Memoirs of a Stripper. And it basically starts from my childhood in Orange County, California, and goes up right until about 2014. Um, and so it talks about how I got into the industry. Um, you know, a lot of funny stories because, you know, if you can't laugh about dancing naked in front of strangers, what can you laugh about? So I try to really make it uh, <laughs> humorous. Um, but also I wanted to tell a different narrative than the typical Dr. Phil narrative you got out there on talk shows about how everybody's, you know, drug addicts and abused and, you know, dating the, you know, wannabe rock star on the couch, smoking pot all day and supporting him, you know, that kind of stereotype. I really wanted to dispel that kind of thing. Um, and then a couple of years after that, in 2018, I um, also published a smaller book a shorter one, basically, um, kind of the ins and outs of the industry, the way I saw it, uh, things like stripper etiquette, 
Um, I write a little bit about misogyny and how to take advantage of it and things like that. Uh, some of the dirty parts, not dirty, like sexual dirty, dirty, more as in kind of gross. Uh, cause it is, gets kind of nasty sometimes. Um, and then I've also published articles in, uh, free thought today, FFRF, uh, paper. And I'm also a contributing writer for secular nation, uh, atheist Alliance of America's, uh, newsletter. Well, so I've written some things. Yeah, you have. <laughs> That's actually great. Yeah. I, I'm, I love that. <laughs> I should have gotten to your bio. So, oh, no worries. <laughs> no, that's actually really cool. Um, cause sitting down and writing is not easy. And, um, I've just always kind of done it. And I, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was writing, 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 writing. Was that the case with you or did you have, did it, was it hard for you to get into it? I've always loved to read. Um, I had, you know, I've always loved books since I was very small. It was one of my first things. And of course, you know, I grew up in the eighties. So, you know, we had one TV, it was in like the den. Um, you know, you had to fight your siblings for it. There was no remote, you know, that kind of a thing. So books for me were a real big pastime. Um, and I found libraries fascinating. So I've always really loved books. I love to read. Um, I like to write, but I was always very intimidated. I think because I read so much, um, I was really doubted my ability to write. So I wrote anyway, but I never really thought, um, authors to me were like rock stars. So the thought of me actually doing that, that was like, it was the difference between seeing Madonna in my room with a hairbrush, um, as opposed to actually like thinking I'm going to be Madonna someday. So it, um, yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of a big step for me to actually think about publishing, uh, anything, but I've always wanted to write. I, I totally hear you. I, it, we have, we have very common history there. I used to practically live in the library all summer between school years. And, uh, they would even have uh, reading competitions or not. They didn't really think of it as competitions, but they'd have like lists of how many books the kids read and everybody would sign up. And mm -hmm. I, and I was, I was gunning for number one. I actually would. I would, <laughs> I would, I would push it hard, you know, and I, I wouldn't just read pamphlets. I'd try to read real books, but it was always, uh, it was always kind of fun doing that. And, and learning just, you know, it, what, it, reading is fun, but it's the, it's the learning. It's like learning all this fascinating information about the past and, you know, other people's views on things. History was always a real big thing for me. I would just, I loved going and just perusing history books even, and just like looking at all the pictures from, you know, unfortunately a lot of war, war coverage, but you know, other history stuff too. So Anyway, yeah, real cool stuff. And and then getting moving up to actually writing and then publishing. I wish more people, you know, could do it because it's it, it, it's such a uh, an intimate and amazing way of sharing yourself with the rest of the world in a way that you get to kind of craft the message too. you get to work it over a little bit. So it's not just, you know, blah, blah, blah. and then, oh, no, I didn't mean to say it quite that way. <laughs> but good times. Now, how did, how did you, let's just sort of walk through the story a little bit, just so people know who haven't seen your stuff. How did you get into and then out of the stripping industry? Um, well, I graduated high school early. Uh, school wasn't particularly fun for me. 
uh, which is why actually I really liked books also. They were kind of a bit of an escape. Um, so when I realized that I could graduate high school early, I did. Uh, so I actually moved out on my own um, right before I turned 18. I graduated right after I turned 16. And, um, you know, I went to work at McDonald's and worked for a phone place. And I'm like, this is horrible. <laughs> I don't like, you know, I had a bit of an issue with authority. I was always very independent um, and always was kind of a sexual being was a little bit of an exhibitionist before I knew what that actually was. Um, so I kind of, you know, back then before the internet, you got the newspaper and you looked at the one ads and answered an ad for to be, a, um, actually the first time was to be like a dancer for bachelor parties, which actually did not turn out well, uh, when you're short and pale and redheaded. Um, and then I finally answered the ad to be a topless waitress. Um, but that, of course, ended up being an end to being a dancer. They give you an ultimatum about a week into it. Uh, so you go from an employee to being an independent contractor. Um, and I did that on and off for about 22 years. I actually just quit last August. So. Okay, cool. Yeah. And Basically, I didn't like being told what to do. Long story short. <laughs> <laughs> I think there might be some degree. What do you think of this? I, you know, you just mentioned that and I suddenly think to myself, I think that's a little bit of a common thread we see with a lot of people in the skeptic community. You know, maybe it's part I, I mean, of it. Could be. You don't like to take people's word for it, I guess. A little bit. Um, yeah. You know, don't want to get pushed around with ideas any more than some people want to get pushed around physically, you know, or beliefs. What was it about the, you know, now that you've, of course, spent all these years working in that industry and you've, there's two things that I was, that I was immediately curious about, which is one, over the time you've been doing this, attitudes culturally have changed quite a bit in regards to sex and bodies and openness of, of both. Um, what have you noticed from inside that industry? It, has it changed along with this? Have you noticed a change? Is this just me seeing it that way? W what do you think about that? I think it has become more acceptable. Um, you don't, there isn't quite the ick factor Mm -hmm. um that there was when I first started dancing I I really felt when I first started at 18 19 and and those years that it was something I really had to hide and you know you kind of played this this double role um but more recently it it really hasn't been that way um people are much more accepting even if they're only outwardly accepting uh because it's it's cool and then, you know, you'll get the little stuff behind the back where everybody's like, you know, to your face. I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. And then, you know, you see the uh, the Karens in the kitchen going, oh, oh, you know, hide your husband. It's like, dude, I don't want your husband trusting. <laughs> Take my word for it. I'm cool. But, um, yeah, I think there's been a little bit of a, a, a shift, I think, socially where people you know, it's kind of in, it, it, can, it can be cool now, which is a good and a bad thing. I think, mm -hmm. uh, certainly it's not something that I like to, 
I don't ever want people to think that I am recruiting or advocating for women or, or people in general to be in the sex industry because it can be very, very difficult. There's a lot of predators in there. Um, you have to really, really be aware and you have to be very strong. And I think being a skeptic helps because, you know, I've been told, I don't know how many times I'm going to be, you know, a model for a video game or, you know, come do this or come do that, or, you know, come to my house, I'm safe. Or, you know, there's, you get told a lot of crap, um, in the guise of trying to help you. And so being able to question things, being skeptical, critical thinking is really, really important. And so if you're somebody that's, you know, willing to take candy from strangers without questioning it, it's not an industry to get into. Yeah, I can imagine that's definitely true. What would you say? Oh, I mean, we're really bad at this. So I'm I'm asking you for a percentage figure, but maybe a, a, an estimate or, you know, from from looking at it over your over the time you've been in this a burnout, you know, like how many people get into this and then uh, find out you know, have, have, have bad consequences. Let's put it that way. Probably uh, quite a lot. Um, yeah. I would say maybe 60 or 70% even. Um, a lot of it has to do with the drugs. A lot of it has to do with self-esteem issues. Um, I actually, we were talking about my YouTube channel. I did do a video of a reading from my second book that talks a little bit about, um, it talks about being rejected and it talks about the burnout factor. Mm -hmm. Um, it's very much a, an emotional roller coaster because, and I think that I've noticed this, there's some parallels with writing. Um, but as a performer, you can have these real highs where you are just, you know, on top of the world and you're breaking it in and everybody's just, you know, you're just awesome. And the next night it's, the complete opposite. You're dirt, you know, you're getting made fun of. Somebody's calling you, well, me in particular, you know, flat chested. I had somebody call me fat. I had another guy tell me I was too skinny. I had, you know, I, you may just be standing in the corner and for some reason it just doesn't happen to be your night. And that is extremely hard on your self esteem. Um, and then you also have the social aspect of it with the other performers. I mean, you have, you know, 50 girls crammed into a dressing room all competing for the same money. Um, and, and it can get a little, uh, can get a little tense. So it's really, it's, it's is there, is there a, 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 a culture of competition there? That's, oh, that's yeah. interesting. I hadn't, I mean, not being familiar with it. I got to admit right now, I've never been in a strip club. <laughs> okay. Okay. I got it. I mean, yeah, don't feel like the Lone Ranger. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, just to, just to yeah. kind of contextualize my experience with this, I am Mr. Naive on all of this, which is why I'm, I have so many questions for you. I was in, you know, Scientology and the Sea Org. I was in the heart of Hollywood. So I was surrounded by strip clubs. We walked past them every night. But it was never going to be a thing that I was going to go in there, right? Because it was out ethics it was grossly immoral as far as scientology was concerned which has a pretty 50s leave it to beaver kind of mentality especially about sex then we uh -huh. then i'm reading you know your material and it's like well yeah no it's not just in scientology this is pretty pervasive and we're just starting to overcome some of these old 
tropes and stereotypes and nonsense. But we have to also sort of balance that with the reality that this is a this is a harsh industry where bad things happen all the time to good people or desperate people or people who, you know, have have gotten to a point where they don't seem to feel like they have very many life choices. And there they are. But even that itself is a stereotype. You know, you don't appear to be that you've made something of yourself. You've moved on uh, with books and writing and critical thinking, and you've survived the industry. So. Is a you know clearly there's spectrums here, and this is not really something that gets a lot of microscopic look by a lot of people. That's why I jumped on the opportunity to have you on my show because I thought it's about time. Let's 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 dive into this. So, so what kind of what are what are what are true about the stereotypes and what are false as far as what you've seen and heard and your experience in the industry? Uh, drugs is probably the biggest true stereotype, I would say. There's a lot of drugs involved. Um, personally, uh, and alcohol, of course. Uh, personally, I think a lot of that goes back to like the purity culture you were talking about with, uh, personally, I was raised Catholic, sort of. I mean, I called bullshit fairly early, but I pretended to be Christian Catholic for a long time after that. Um, people are taught to be ashamed uh, about sex and sexuality and their bodies and things like that. And I think a lot of times when they get into this industry, um, those types of chemicals, be it cocaine, helps you to get over shyness, you know, pain medicine is a big one now. So now you're talking about opiates, um, which, and then of course they move on to heroin if you can't get it anymore. Um, and alcohol especially is probably a big one. So I think the drugs are probably um, the biggest accurate stereotype uh, that I've seen. And sometimes that happens, you know, maybe after somebody started, maybe they started like where I started dancing, I was really put in an ultimatum where I had been a waitress where I was getting tips and getting minimum wage. And, you know, a week later, they're like, sign this contract, you're an independent contractor, which means I'm now paying them to work. And now all of a sudden, I'm not getting a paycheck. So being put in that position all of a sudden, you may need something to help you get through the night to pay rent. Uh, so I think that's probably the biggest stereotype there. Um, and, it, and it's one of the hardest ones to come overcome. Like I said, naturally, I tend to be just a sexual person. I tend to be open. I was, even though my mother was raised really um, like hardcore Catholic, like nuns and all that stuff, um, she always taught me that there was nothing wrong with nudity and sexuality. She taught me to be safe. She taught me to, you know, look, I know it's, it's weird, but it's the truth. And, uh, so I was never ashamed that part of it. Never. I would, it never was ashamed. It took me a while to be comfortable on stage and the performance part of it. But I really felt like if I started drinking or started doing something else to overcome that, it would only snowball. And I would never actually really develop the stage presence or the confidence to be on stage and be a performer if I was always chemically enhanced. And that just happened to be my, um, that was my take on it. And that's really, oh, I think a lot of what kept me safe, uh, didn't make me very popular because I was not invited to the Coke parties or, you know, um, that kind of stuff. I did smoke a lot of pot, so that was a little different, but, um, you know, I never, I never did anything, anything else, but 
yeah, like I said, not, not popular and girls don't like me telling them that it's not a good idea to drink or do drugs at work also. So I'm still not popular. (laughs) Well, that makes complete sense. So you actually were able to maintain that position through all the years you were doing this. That's, that's surprising because the peer pressure on that would be intense. Well, yeah, but you know what? I, I was never popular in school either. So I guess I was just used to like being the not cool one. So it didn't really bother me. And, and it's not that I haven't gone out and sown my oats and partied and done all that kind of stuff too. Just never at work. There was always a, I had two rules, never at work and never if I was really upset. Okay. So you were able to kind of keep these rules in place that you had, which actually are almost, uh, I mean, don't do drugs when you're upset. That's pretty much why a lot of people do do drugs. So kind of, kind of impressive, actually, that you were able to maintain that kind of discipline. Um, well, I probably shouldn't take too much credit for it. I have a really low tolerance for alcohol, so I tend to get sick when I drink too much. And so that sort of just like compounds everything. It's like, oh, hey, I feel really shitty. So let me, you know, feel good for an hour or two and then feel like really shitty again for the next like 12 hours. Um, and I also have a very low tolerance to like pain medications and things like that. They also make me sick. So a lot of it had to do, I think with just my own body makeup. I don't tolerate a lot of that stuff very well. And like I said, it's not that I didn't party. Um, but I just, I, you know, if you're really upset and you go out and you, I don't know if you see people sometimes at the bar and you know that they've had a bad day and it's like they're drinking to make it get better and it just seems like it gets infinitely worse, you know, and then you're, you're ugly crying and you're mad and you're angry, you say something stupid or you break something or something like that. It just, it just doesn't, for me, it just wasn't very appealing. Um, so it was just something I decided to make a rule. If I'm gonna, if I know I'm gonna be hungover or feel terrible, I might as well have fun. <laughs> and you know, if I'm upset, I'd rather work through it, and then you know, then party and have fun, and then be sick. Makes, but, yeah, makes total sense. In terms of stereotypes, which we were talking about, and I want to, I want to continue on for a little bit because uh, there's a lot of them when it comes to you know the sex industry, and I. I think uh, if if somebody were going to, you know, make me talk about, you know, something I don't know really much of anything about, but I've heard all about my whole life, right, then I would imagine stripping is a gateway drug to prostitution and to drugs like heavy drugs, or maybe even, you know, at the level of human trafficking levels of prostitution and things like that, or or it's a gateway to the porn industry and to, you know, being a pornographic star or something. Are are these base are these ideas based in reality or is this just the fantasy that that middle America sort of imagines is what this industry is about? Um definitely like we talked about can be a gateway to drugs, I would say. Um and I think a lot of that has to do with the purity culture, the shame, you know, not feeling okay about what you're doing. Um, I've known a lot of dancers that have gotten into porn. I've been, you know, recruited myself to do porn. It turns out I'm pretty stubborn and the whole opposition to authority there served me well. Um, as far as the trafficking goes, that is something that I have a little bit of an issue with when it comes to stripping. 
um, and sometimes even prostitution. And definitely there are dancers that are, that are prostitutes for me that, you know, kind of defeats the purpose. Um, if you're going to be a stripper, the whole point is to, you know, not do a lot of work and make a lot of money, not, you know, so, um, but when it comes to the trafficking, there are a lot of out outreach groups that will target strip clubs in particular and go around and talk to the dancers and say things like, don't you want to be loved? Don't you want to be respected? You know, and then on their websites, they say, hey, we're, we're going to strip clubs to fight human trafficking. Well, to be a stripper, you have to audition. Um, so I don't know any traffic victims that are auditioning. You, you have to audition, you have to sign papers, uh, some places you have to sign business, uh, you have to have business licenses, you have to have in Nevada, you have to have um, a sheriff's card, you have to be fingerprinted, you get FBI background check, actually to be a, pro a legal prostitute in Nevada also. Um, so it is not in the strip club's interest to traffic women that come in to be strippers. It just... It, it just doesn't work. So if you see an outreach group saying, hey, you know, we're stopping human trafficking by going into the strip clubs, they're lying. Uh, they're using that as uh, an excuse to get money or donations or support. Sex trafficking is those are the massage parlors. Um, you know, that's Epstein's Island. Um, that's sex trafficking. Those are women that are being brought in under the radar. They're not documented. If you're going to be a legitimate porn star, like you are actually probably pretty close to the, the, the hub, right? Um, the San Fernando Valley, uh, Winnetka, Canoga Park, um, those places are, you know, that, that's where porn is made. You have to sign agreements. You have to get weekly um, HIV tests and STD tests and there's no incentive to traffic them. There just isn't. And frankly, they're not paid a whole lot, which was probably a good incentive for me. Partly, I didn't really like, I didn't like the idea of going someplace and being like, hey, here's this guy, you're going to sleep with him. And I'm like, yeah, but what if he's a dick? You know, what if I don't want to? I, I, I did personally, I didn't like not having a choice. But when you're talking about legitimate porn um, outlets and companies and things like that, are they shady? Are they sketchy? Are they going to lie to you? Are they? Yeah, probably. Um, but that's the same with the modeling industry and with, you know, a thousand other businesses like that also. I mean, look at the cheerleaders for the NFL teams and for those, you know, they're, they're exploited in the same way. They're just not totally naked. Um, so as far as the trafficking goes, I, I have never seen a sex traffic victim or somebody that I suspected to be a sex traffic victim in the strip club ever in 20 years. Um, you know, you're handing them your ID, you're giving them your social security number. It, it just, it doesn't, it, it just doesn't make sense. But there were people that tell you that, that there is sex trafficking in the strip club. Makes sense. And well, that's why we're talking, because I wanted to know the on the ground you know, view from inside, not what people think about it. Yeah. And there's you know? plenty of other shady stuff. There's tons and tons and tons of people there to exploit girls. And that's why you have to keep your head about you. That's why it's a good idea to be sober. But, but it's not that it, it, it isn't that they're, they're not kidnapping you and forcing you to go on stage. It just logically, it doesn't make any sense. You're not, you're going to notice 
<laughs> they're shoving somebody out on stage, you know? Totally. They're, yeah. Well, what does happen then? Because you mentioned there are, you know, shady, sketchy things. And I think we've, you know, covered the fact that drugs are rampant in the industry. And that makes sense. Um, what else is going on there? Or what are the other pitfalls or dangers that are obvious or maybe not so obvious? Um, a lot of times there, you know, you have you have men in authority. Um, so you have people that are saying, Hey, come out to dinner with me. You may have owners, you may have staff that are looking to exploit or, um, you know, basically just sleep with that kind of a thing. And then there is, um, you can definitely start going down the road to prostitution. If you're having a bad night, you might have a customer that's like, Hey, come meet me here. You can make this amount of money and we'll call it good. And so that can be really tempting, which I don't particularly have an issue with unless it's somebody um, doing it against their will or they feel like they have to do it. Um, I was years and years ago, my, a lot of girls from the club had an opportunity to go to uh, the Playboy Mansion. There was going to be celebrities and all that kind of stuff. And I was immediately skeptical because I knew that we were coming from a strip club and I knew that if I was going to go there and I didn't want to sleep with anybody, that that was probably not going to be cool. That they were probably, I was going to be the unpopular girl once again. So I declined to go um, because I, I, I wasn't sure of what type of security I knew that because we were dancers in particular, that they were already going to be making assumptions about what we were going to do. And that a lot of girls were going to do that. And a lot of girls were going to be stoked to do it. I wasn't one of them. So I declined to go. Um, I think sometimes, and um, not to bring up politics, but Stormy Daniels mentioned when she was talking about being alone in a room with Trump. And she says, I didn't really want to sleep with him, but I kind of felt like I had to just to end the whole encounter. Um, that's the type of situation I'm talking about where it is technically consensual, but you have somebody that's in a position of authority and you almost don't want to say no. You don't know what's going to happen. If you do say no, you don't know if they're going to blacklist you, if they're going to, you know, smear your name. There are certain people in the adult industry that if you don't go along with what they say, they will completely just ruin you 100%. Um, and so while, you know, everybody jokes, oh, she got paid to sleep with him and all that kind of stuff. I understood when she said that she described her, the incident with her, I understood a hundred percent because you could be in that position. You're alone with somebody of that stature, gross as he is. And all you want to do is get out and you're used to already using your body in that manner. So it's kind of like to hell with it. Let me just get it over with and move on. So that's the type of exploitation that I'm talking about. Not like I said, not like the massage parlor where, you know, women are, are forced into that situation and maybe getting beaten or abused or, or something like that. It's, it's more subtle. It's a more subtle, um, exploitation than, than the blatant kidnapping, um, type thing. Yeah. Makes sense. Totally makes sense. Um, have you run into other things in or out of the industry in terms of stereotypes or tropes that you just go, come on. Or, no, that's just not right, even though everybody kind of thinks that's how it is or, you know, is sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That's, you know, that's how it is. 
anything yeah, else like that? People thinking that I'm trying to sleep with their men, I would say. I would say that's probably the biggest one. And I don't I don't understand where they're coming from there because I'm a tease. What I what I did for a living was literally not sleep with guys. So um I've had friend people that I thought were actually my really good friends. And when we got into another argument, they would throw that in my face. And I'm like, dude, have you seen your dude though? Like I'm <laughs> I'm cool. <laughs> really okay uh yeah uh that type of thing like i'm um yeah that's really i'd say that's probably the biggest that i personally encountered stereotype other than the drugs and the um you know being in a bad relationship or having to support um a man um that type of thing okay now what about violence in this industry? Under underhanded, behind the scenes, you know, maybe not obvious. I've, you know, it would make sense, but it's not necessarily that the world runs on what makes sense. That you wouldn't beat on strippers who are showing their body, you know, and you're going to have bruises, stuff like that. Like that doesn't really make sense that you would want to do that. And yet, like I said, the world doesn't really run the way we think it should all the time. What? How does that? play out behind the scenes in that industry i've never seen a dancer um be hurt or abused or heard of a dancer be hit by any type of staff or owner or customer or anything like that at all um once again it's in the club's best interest to keep their performers safe period um i had actually the only time i've ever been given a black eye my son was um he was like one and a half or two. And I was laying, I was laying down on the couch like this and he was sitting on the floor and he was playing and we were watching shows and I was watching the show and he just out of the blue threw his head back. And when he did, he hit me in the eye and I got a black eye. And it's literally the only black eye I've ever had. Uh, I was not allowed to work. I was not allowed to work because they didn't, number one, I, I was able to cover it up, but just in case, because it was a little swollen. But they didn't want people thinking that it had come from the club. So uh, it just, it is, as a performer, you are a performer. You're not, it is not, there's no reason for anybody to hit you that way. Now, dancer on dancer, yeah, I've seen that a couple times. In, uh, in, in like the dressing room and stuff, yeah. Yeah, okay, good. Well, let's, let's, uh, good. That's, I didn't mean good, but like. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, like, okay, so we, so that, that actually goes right to where I was going to go next, which is the behind the scenes in the dressing room, right? The competition, is it cutthroat? How does it work exactly? Because there's this idea that you got this crowd of guys or, you know, people, I guess there could be women there as well, of course, and mm -hmm. you're going to go out there for your slot and you're going to do your performance like any other performer, stand up or, you know, actors or whatever. And then you're going to go back to the dressing room until your next slot comes up. So whatever money is hitting the stage when you're up there, well, that's yours. So maybe not. How, do, like, how does that work as far as like, why would there be competition and what is the competition about? So there's two, there's two ways to make money as, as a dancer. There's, there's basically your performance is twofold. You have your stage performance, which is like your advertising, right? And it differs from market to market. Um, I've heard in places like 
uh, Miami, where it's mostly stage shows. Mostly girls will make their money on stage. You see them make it rain and all that kind of stuff. It's a little different than how I've worked usually. You go out, you have your stage. Yes, you may have made quite a bit of money there. Um, when you're on stage, that's all you. Um, there is a basic blanket rule that girls um, on the floor aren't allowed to come up and sit at your tip rail because they don't, you know, you're not supposed to take eyes off of the person that's on stage. But when you're done with your stage, you go out into the crowd and you try to get lap dances or private dances. That is where the money is made mostly. Um, and getting back to the violence thing, that is the only time that I've ever been um, physically afraid. There have been a few times, and I write about it in um, in my books, uh, where I've been with a customer, and you're only they're usually semi-private. There's always video cameras, there's always security, there's always bouncers, um, but there have been customers that have gotten handsy. I had a customer actually physically pick me up. I'm only like five foot, uh, so for whatever reason, it's like it's I don't like just arbitrarily pick my cat up off, off the floor because it's really unnerving to just be suddenly like lifted up off your feet. But I had this happen to me and the person actually flipped me over and then pinned me on a couch. And he was like sort of semi-joking, uh, but he could have really hurt me. Uh, and that was really scary. Um, but that is really where you make your money is you go in and you do lap dances. Sometimes they're full contact. Sometimes they're not. It depends on the market. Back in 97, when I started, it was um, a little more conservative than it is now. Um, and like I said, it definitely depends on where you where you go, um, what the specific rules are for whatever club or market you're at. Um, but that's where it gets really competitive because you have customers that may see more than one girl. You have girls that may get possessive over a customer that spends a lot of money. Um, they may start doing things that you're not going to do to make extra money. And then you end up, so most of the time you end up fighting over customers. Um, and then of course there's, you know, there's your spot in the dressing room, which gets a little middle schoolish. Um, and so, you know, that can cause conflict. There's a thousand different reasons. I had somebody get irritated with me because I didn't like the amount of glitter they were using because it was like everywhere. Um, and I didn't, I, I'm not a fan of glitter. Uh, so it, that's where the competition comes in, uh, individual customers. Cool. Okay. Well, that definitely makes sense. Do you have regulars? Does that happen in the stripping industry that people just yeah. keep coming back? That was kind of shown in that movie, the wrestler with Mickey Rourke and, you know, he yeah. kept coming back for Marissa Tomei, kept coming back. I yeah. love you. You know, he got, he got personal even. Does Do things like that happen? And if they do, yeah. do they happen often? Yes. In fact, that's kind of the goal. Uh, personally, you want somebody to come back. And especially, if, I mean, I liked a lot of my customers. I had quite a few regulars and was quite fond of a good portion of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but you have some crossing lines. Uh, yeah, I'm not even, sometimes just personality wise, I, mm. you know, sometimes you're just like, Oh, I can't stand you, but I'm going to pretend. Um, but yeah, no regulars are definitely something to be, you want them. That, that's security. I, I worked at financial security. I mean, I would work, um, mostly like weeknights. And so you get people that come in after work 
And if I'm working Tuesday night was like my consistent night. Um, I, I always worked that night, which means customers would know when to find me and they tend to be slow. So if I'm going to work a Tuesday night and we have maybe 50 customers all night long, and I know that I have two or three of them, I may only dance for two or three guys that night, but make, you know, quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So yeah, regulars are really the key. And of course that depends on the market. If you're going to be in a different, like a touristy type area, like Vegas, you're not going to have regulars like you would in Sacramento. Um, it's just, it's a different scene in Vegas. You know, there's obviously a huge turnover with both girls and customers. And I think there's 30 or something different clubs. So it's, it's different, but you know, it definitely varies market to market, but regulars for me, especially in Sacramento were, uh, the goal. Hmm, makes sense. What you know, you mentioned that you have security cameras, um, yeah, bouncers. You, of course you have the, you know, the owners, bartenders, et cetera. You got, you know, people around. Uh, you go into the semi-private spaces or are they fully door-closed, fully private spaces when you're doing the private stuff? Depends on the club and depends on the market. Um, that time when that customer picked me up, it, it was that curtain and they did have cameras and they were supposed to have somebody outside. They did not. I actually stopped working there because of that incident because somebody was supposed to be watching me and they weren't. And I ended up having to handle that situation on my own. And it wasn't he was really drunk. So he wasn't really like malicious, but had he been, he could have very, I could have died and there was nobody watching. me, And so I left. Um, I mean, like permanently, I, I never went back to that club after that. It was a very good club too. Um, so it, it depends. I, I get a little weary when they're shut. The door. Uh, most of the time it's curtains that are separating. Uh, the club that I worked at most recent was booths. So you're like, um, like a bathroom stall with no door covered in velour. If you can picture that. <laughs> I, I can, unfortunately. Okay. Yes, I get the idea. <laughs> no, okay. and, then, and then what are, what about the, um, what about the relationship with the bouncers? You know, they usually portray them in movies as, you know, kind hearted teddy bears with a, with a menacing front you know, kind of thing. But I, you know, that's, and again, it's another, just another stereotype. What, 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 what's that, what's the relationship with them like? Is it ever personal or is it just they're doing their job, you're doing your job, or do you become friends with, with the other people at the, at, at these facilities? I would say that that stereotype is probably 70 to 80% accurate, um, but we tip them. So, you know, they have a vested interest in not only protecting us, um, but in being nice, but I am very fond of the vast majority of my bouncers, uh, the vast majority, uh, same thing with DJs, DJs. Um, I don't know if you've gotten, to, actually, I think it might be chapter nine. Um, the chapter in the book that you're reading right now, expose yourself is about prayer. And I open that with a story, um, about a DJ. I talk about basically praying to the DJ. Um, but the DJ actually controls everything. So he's really the person you want to be friends with above anybody else. They control your stage, your lighting, um, all that kind of stuff. So, but you tip them. So there's a reason that they want to be your friend. Uh, same thing with the bouncers. So. Makes sense. So it's its own kind of little ecosystem. It's its own little kind of econ economical system. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, interesting. 
And as a contractor, then, you mentioned you're having to pay to be there. Does that mean you're renting time on their stage, or how does that work? Exactly. Uh, it is called stage rent. Uh, stage I just imagined that. I wasn't sure what the yeah. deal was. Okay. So similar to how hairdressers or nail salons may rent out their stations. Okay. Makes sense. Now, this... That you know, you're, you're, a good chunk of your book has to the expose yourself book has to do with critical thinking and skepticism and having a skeptical attitude about things and you're not you're pretty blunt about it too you know in terms of your ideas about belief and you know uh, sort of arbitrary morality being enforced on people and what nonsense that is and how people who really have no idea what they're talking about try to impose you know their ethical standards on sex workers. And so where do you come down on this? At what point is, you know, what behavior is acceptable, not acceptable to you in this industry? What have you seen that you just go, this really needs to stop versus stuff that people are saying needs to stop that you know is perfectly safe and is perfectly legit? Hmm. Honestly, I'm not sure that any of my own personal ethics or morality really differ in and out of the strip club. I mean, honestly, I, I just think a lot of it has to do with um, being kind to other people. I mean, I, I really think that, and as you get in later into the book, I read a lot about humanism and altruism. And I really honestly just believe that being kind to other people and being considerate to other people will ultimately pay off. I don't know if you're familiar with Shannon Q, but she, um, she makes a really good point about altruism that the true definition of the word that you don't actually have a personal motivation in helping people, um, you know, that it's just purely to help people is not necessarily true because when you, when you help people, it makes you feel good, but it also improves your society and your environment, uh, in itself. So I really feel like just being kind and being considerate of other people, um, other people's perspectives and that really applies whether you're working at Walmart or whether you're working in the strip club. Agreed. Uh, it's chaos. Be kind. Got that tattooed on my arm. Ugh. Yeah. It's kind of my, my motto in life. I think being kind is sort of the, the ultimate uh, commandment. If we had to have commandments, I think that would be the one I'd go with. Um, but okay, so then what about this business of enforced morality on the industry? What have you seen that, you know, that you go, okay, these guys might have a point, but these guys over here are, are just talking nonsense. Uh, enforced morality, like how? Well, you know, you have the Christian right who would, who would just as soon shut everything down because all of it is dirty. All of it is from Satan. You know, it's all evil well, and must be destroyed. Right. And then you have varying well, degrees of that. So. Well, I think they may say that, but I don't think they would ever actually do that because a lot of them own strip clubs and are strip club customers. Well, there we go. <laughs> and I think that once you, <laughs> I think once you get in, uh, I actually write about a customer who was, um, who took a lot of time talking to me about his faith um, and then used God as a justification to try and touch me where I was not allowing him to touch and actually told yeah. me that he was directed by God to do that. Um, in fact, the, the, there's a chapter, the chapter's actually entitled God told me to touch your pussy. I remember is, that. Yeah. 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 So, um, 
yeah, I think they're just saying that. I, I think that's a load of crap. Uh, when you get to my <laughs> my chapter on conspiracies, I write that um, that it's actually the Christian right who is backing and um, a secret proponent of strip clubs in the porn industry because it gives them a it gives them something to stand on. It gives them something to fight against. Uh, but in the end, sex is sex. It's natural. It's it's nothing to be ashamed of. So. Um, I think that type of purity culture forced morality is something, like I said, it goes outside of porn industry, sex industry, uh, strip clubs. It's, you know, it's a means of control. It, it, there's no substance behind it. Yeah, um, it's not immoral. Sex isn't inherently immoral. Well, no, of course it's not. We wouldn't have a species if we couldn't have sex. There's, there, there's clearly nothing wrong with, with the sexual act. Um, there have been, we are still overcoming, though, and, you know, and I, I, I guess I get to talk a little bit intelligently about this, having come from a purity culture cult, you know, that uh, we've, we've still got a lot of hurdles to overcome when it comes to the idea of sex versus the idea of perversion. Right. This is this is the word Hubbard would use uh, with Scientology is, you know, uh, all homosexuality, anything basically that falls under LGBT, anything that falls under uh, bondage or any of that, you know, any experimentation, any exploratory stuff, if it's not just kind of straight vanilla, then it's just bad because sex is only for reproduction. And that's where it's good. And it's not good anywhere else. Right. And we and this has just been this like snail crawl of progress culturally overcoming this this sort of dark ages mentality um but i find it fascinating that you because i as i didn't particularly think the thought through of oh these are the same people who own the strip clubs that that's a little surprising to me actually because that's actually a matter of public record almost i mean i think you could actually you know uncover that pretty quickly so I mean, how does that hypocrisy work i mean i think the same hypocrisy it, any religion or any faith, faith that puts that, I mean, uh, in my own family, you know, when I first started dancing, um, it was, Oh, Oh, how could you do that? And then it was like, Oh, can I borrow some money? All of a sudden it's okay. So I'm going to say that the hypocrisy is probably the common denominator in all of those faiths. And, and, um, I was discussing, I, I watched actually your interview to get a little background on you with uh, Mama Atheist um, because I was very curious about Scientology. The only thing that I had ever heard was Leah Remini and, you know, Tom Cruise and all that stuff. And so I was, and so I was interested in it and to hear you talk about it. I was, and I was watching it with a secular friend, somebody who was raised secular atheist, but not, and never gone to church, looks at religion of all types as what the fuck right and i'm like oh my god it's so crazy how could anybody ever believe that that's just it's so obviously false how do you and you know and you talked about the incremental how they introduce it little bits and little bits and little bits and you don't actually get to the other stuff until way later and i started to see the parallels in catholicism and christianity and i'm like any and my friend goes he looks at me and he goes you realize that there's no difference between that and Catholicism. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, Scientology. It's so weird. It's so weird. And then I'm like, it's not though. It's really not though. It's actually the same thing. And then I, I felt like 
I kind of felt bad because because <laughs> I was like, oh, the Scientology guy. How weird. And then I was like, oh, no. I was so wrong. So my apologies, first off, because it uh, wasn't that much different than what I thought was normal um, growing up and, and some of the stuff that I believed with the blood sacrifice and the whole, you know, all that stuff. It's it's just, it's not any, it's literally not any weirder. Um, but yeah, they, the it, it's a means of control. It's that, That's really all that is. The morality that the... Um, the idea that one faith or one belief has some type of ownership on morality and has some type of say and is able to say that this is this is okay and this isn't. When it comes to sex, if it's consensual and it's of age, uh, that's all that matters. There really, there's nothing outside of of that. If it's if it feels good and it's not hurting anybody, that's really got to be the bottom line. I would tend to agree on that. You know, because frankly, it's nobody else's business what you're doing in the privacy of your own home with consenting adults. Absolutely. It just, it just isn't, you know, and, and I, I, I'm pretty broad on that myself. You know, I, I think that uh, I think we've got a long way to go before we get everybody else on that page, though. I'm trying. Yeah, I know. Me too. Hey everyone, I want to introduce you to a new sponsor for my show, which I think is a vital service that especially now is something we might all want to avail ourselves of, and that is BetterHelp. If you are feeling anxious or sad or just want someone to talk to, who better than a licensed professional therapist? I know in the past there was some controversy with this, but that's been addressed, and I'm happy to endorse this service now. BetterHelp is a professional service which will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in your area. This is actually a worldwide service, not just here in the U.S. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions at your convenience instead of having to wait on theirs. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. I endorse this service, but check it out for yourself. Visit their website and read their testimonials. And if you sign up using my special URL, you'll get 10% off your first month. Look them up at betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. Pretty easy to remember, right? That's betterhelp.com dot com slash chris shelton sign up today and i want to be clear also of course that you know i've i've um i've made statements in the past and i'll stick to this that you know that that there are differences in these groups as far as like something like scientology versus catholicism as far as the level of 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 control or abusive power or the consequences of trying to leave for example you know, the consequences of trying to leave Scientology are fairly drastic. Yeah. Leaving, leaving Catholicism, 
you know, you might get a talking to by your aunt or something, but it's not really the same thing as they're going to stalk you. So there are differences that way, but I definitely am on the same page with you in terms of how organized religion, both of these groups and many, many others, feel it that there it's it's somehow their moral duty to tell other people how to live their lives, and and on that we are in complete agreement that this is just utter tripe. So I always have to clarify that for people because people tend to get a little sensitive about you know oh you're attacking my beliefs and I go no it's not about your beliefs I don't care what you believe yeah. In the same way, I don't care about what you're doing in the bedroom. I really don't care what's going on up here either. It's just how much of what's going on up here do you think I need to be in compliance with? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's I have I, an article coming out um, in Free Thought today. I'm not sure exactly when it's going to be published, but kind of along those lines where you know, there are people that consider themselves Christian or uh, believers or, or something like that who have almost conformed their belief to the people that they care about. So like in the case of my mom, when I told her I was an atheist, she said, and she, she thought about it for a minute. And then she said, well, the God that I believe in would never sell you, send you to hell. Um, he, he would, you're a good person. You would never go to hell. And that totally conflicts with how she was raised. It, it's absolutely, they, that's not what Catholics teach. Um, and that's not what she was taught, but what she did was she morphed her beliefs to be inclusive, um, to the people that she loved. Uh, same thing with my son. She would, she tried to, she was trying to sprinkle him with holy water when we came over there and was just doing it kind of like on the sly, like following him around. She had a little bottle and, and was just trying to drip it on him. And, and I was like, I looked at her and I said, do you really think that he would go to hell because I didn't have him baptized? And, and she thought about it and she said, well, no. And I said, well, then what are you doing? And she let it go and she never brought it up again. And so I, I write about that. I have neighbors who are very religious um, and have never mentioned it, but they bring me flowers. Um, they help people. They're very caring. They're good people. There are people that have beliefs that, that don't push them on other people that I don't know if their beliefs make them better people, but they're, but they're comfortable with what they have. And I'm really okay with that. Um, until, like I said, you have like the outreach groups that are coming into the strip clubs that are telling you that nobody loves you and nobody respects you and that you need to go and bow down and get on your knees over here, uh, as opposed to what you're doing over here. And, you know, and then on the other hand, we'll also use the cause of sex trafficking, which is real and hurts people. And instead of actually directing their efforts to help, they are trying to um, enforce their morality on an industry that doesn't need it. Um, you know, if they really cared, they'd be in the massage parlors, you know? Yeah, let's, let's actually go there for a second, because I'm glad you mentioned that it reminded me of something I wanted to follow up with you on earlier. Because um, it seems like there, you know, you've drawn a line here that that there is an area of this industry that is trafficky, dangerous stuff. How, what was your experience with that I'm not, not saying in terms of you working there, but what did you see, observe, experience of that? Other than maybe one or two girls that might have fallen in with somebody that, like a pimp, somebody that would get them into prostitution and get them in a position either by drugs or money or abuse or something like that. And actually, but those those women would be taken out of the strip club. They wouldn't be there while that was happening. That was somebody that might you know, be sucked in by a, a boyfriend 
or something like that, who they thought cared about them. And then all of a sudden they're, you know, they're doing things that they don't want to do. Um, but other than that, I, you know, I never saw it. Like I said, I, I've never seen anybody forced to be on stage ever. Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't it, logically, it just doesn't, it just doesn't match. It just doesn't happen. You're, you're not pushing somebody out on stage. You have to, you have to want to be on stage. No, absolutely. Um, absolutely. That's, that's crystal clear. And, and I'm glad that you've said it so, so bluntly and so boldly, because now it's super clear that that is, you know, this is not a, a, a trafficking part of the industry, but there are these other parts that are. Um, I don't think that's part of the legit, legitimate industry at all. Uh-huh. Other than maybe things that you might see on like Pornhub, where I've run across videos where I'm like, this looks like, you know, something bad. Yeah. Um, so there's that, but that's not part of the legitimate industry. Like I said, when it comes to porn, if you're going to go down to LA and you're going to be a porn star, you're getting HIV tests, you're signing contracts, you know, you, all that, you're providing ID and social security number. I mean, traffickers aren't going to put you with, um, you know, vivid pictures because there's a record. I, and I don't know a lot about sex trafficking and the issue personally, because I, it's just something that's never really come into my realm. But I believe that these women are women that are being brought in from out of the country or kidnapped or stolen or things like that. I don't think that it's, it's not part of the legitimate sex industry where you're filing taxes. If you're being sex trafficked, you know what I'm saying? You're not collecting 1099s. Absolutely. No, for sure. No question about it. And we definitely see indicators of this uh, throughout the well, what you just see online uh, yeah. coming out of East, you know, Eastern Europe, coming out of the Philippines, coming out of Southeast Asia. You see, you know, this is where you know the there's a tremendous amount of money and a tremendous amount of trafficking and nonsense and kidnapping and violence and stuff going on in those parts of the world with this, and it's reflected in not the professional industry, but in the amateur industry uh of you know porn videos that you see where you're looking at people who are clearly not there because they want to be there things like that you know and that's just that's that's awful but it's definitely a different thing from what you experienced and i i'm glad we can differentiate those two things because they get muddied they get muddied in people's heads clearly you know if they're coming to strip clubs I think that they muddy it on purpose, to be honest. And I think part of that is the the way to control the the morality narrative is by saying, look at all this bad stuff. They don't want to acknowledge that women and men choose to do this. They they don't want to acknowledge that it's a choice because if you paint it as something that people are forced to do, it's easier to demonize. Absolutely. Especially at your Sunday sermons when you're doing a whole nother round of fundraising in a whole different venue. Or, you know, or, and it's, it's, that's a really interesting thing you brought up because I I didn't actually know that at all. I didn't know that there, that, you know, you could have people who are going to Sunday service, you know, screaming and, and, and crying about how awful this industry is while they're literally, you know, own it, participating in it, part of it, that, and then playing both sides. That's fascinating to me. Wow. So I've had a lot of Christian customers. Yeah. And actually, how I ended up getting involved with the FFRF, um, I got involved with them online. Um, I was having an issue with my son's public school. Uh, they stepped in 
And then I submitted an article to them and they published it. And it was actually like my first published piece ever outside of my own self-publishing. So I was like, oh my God. Um, and I know how that feels. It's kind of yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is great. And yeah. so they had, um, their convention was in San Francisco. Uh, it was at the Hyatt and the hotel was stupid expensive. So I asked a regular if he would pay um, for it. And it's somebody who happens to be, he doesn't consider himself Christian, but he considers himself to be uh, conservative and a believer. And, you know, he was like, well, I'll go ahead and help you get to this atheist convention because it will help you find your path. He goes, you're going to get there and thinking I'm going to meet a bunch of satanic, you know, horrific, horrible, awful people. Um, and it turns out I went there, I met the chapter president of, um, my local chapter. Um, who suggested expose yourself and met, uh, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred people that I absolutely adore, maybe one or two that sucked. But for the most part, it was like, it was such an eye opening experience. And it was what really led me on this path um, to being an atheist advocate was going to that uh, convention. But the irony is that I wouldn't have gone if I'd had to buy my own hotel room. <laughs> interesting so the person, yeah so the person that, that actually paid for that was um somebody who considers themselves a conservative believer who thought that i would go there and it would take me off of this path i was on wow so. wow interesting the the problem with you was that you were an atheist huh Atheist advocacy. This is an interesting topic, actually. But before we dive into that, because I, I have questions about that, too, of course. Um, can is this an, an industry? Well, clearly, you know, you've made a living at it. Is it a good living? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. It's I mean, pretty good. How good do you have to be to have a good living? I mean, can you suck and have a good living? Do you have I mean, what are the skill set that you develop that and, and and I mean all the skills. I don't just mean, you know, you can fluidly move your body, but like what else is there involved in this that you know, I almost want to ask, I mean, for people out there who are wondering, you know, about getting into this industry, like what 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 is the skill set? I think being uh, personable, being able to connect with people. Um, like I said, I actually really, really enjoyed and liked a lot of my customers. A lot of them. I, I enjoyed the interactions I had with them, not only sexual, but intellectual. You meet people from all over the world, which is a terrible time right now to, you know, you know, now is not the time you want to meet people from a whole lot of different places and like get touched them. Um, <laughs> right. But a year ago, it was cool. Um so I think being personable really helps, uh, being sober really helps. Um, but that's, you know, it's hard to say it can be really feast or famine, uh, and dancing really has very, very little to do with it. As far as the skills you need to be successful as a stripper. Um, I actually, I write about that in my second book also it's entitled, I can't dance because for reals, I'm not that great of a dancer. Um, so you're because so you're not you're not a you're not a Jennifer Lopez on the on the stage. Oh no! Because <laughs> this is again this is a, well it's another stereotype actually that that we're that's kind of popping up right now. 
you know, some of them, some of them are, there are some extremely talented dancers and some of the girls that do, um, you know, are very skilled at pole work and they fly. I'm like, I don't have workers' compensation. I'm keeping my ass on the ground. You know what I'm saying? I was last thing I want to do is climb up a pole, fall on my head. And, uh, it, yeah, I think really being personable, being strong and being sober is really one of the biggest, biggest things, um, to making money and keeping your money. Um, is not getting caught up into drugs and the alcohol and um, being able to really keep your head about you, not getting wrapped up into some of the other, you know, the social issues, the, the little groups and the cliques and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's kind of hard to not make money. Mm. You really, you know, mm. it can be pretty lucrative. Of course, it definitely depends on the economy. I was in Vegas. Um, when the crash happened and literally it was hopping one night and the next night it was like crickets. And then after that, it got pretty cut throat and it was hard. It was really, really hard. Um, so I always have looked at the strip club industry as almost like a microcosm of the greater economy because it really tells you where people are at with disposable income. Right. Exactly. I, you know, I, I kind of am experiencing a little bit of that myself right now with a YouTube channel and Patreon support, you know, because, and my Patreon supporters are awesome. And I really haven't lost that much, which is the only thing that's really keeping the lights on in the show going here because YouTube is kind of tanking right now on the ad revenue. So it's, it's very, I definitely feel you on that one. Um, okay. Atheism, skepticism. So was that your first introduction to this world, this going to this convention and seeing and meeting all these people and being like, oh, what's this all about? Or had you read books before that or talked with other people in this community? How did, how did that journey go? Um, after I lost my nephew um, to cancer, I had really started to look into scientific aspects of consciousness, uh, life after death, um, basically as a route to grieving and to understand the loss of a child. Um, that was obviously really difficult. And so that was when I kind of started to read about it. And I, atheist was a dirty word as a kid, right? Atheists, they eat babies. Um, they steal, they rob, they rape, they're, they're Satan worshipers, they're really bad people. I never really knew the definition of the word. I never bothered to look at it because it was horrible. You're an atheist, you might as well be a serial killer. Obviously, that's not true. So I started reading um, some books on skepticism, some books on science, even got into some quantum physics, astrophysics. I mean, and on a layman's, like, I mean, like, I wouldn't ever mama atheist is what an astrophysicist yes she's not somebody i'm gonna go toe-to-toe with like i i barely get the concepts but i understand the greater my interest in it was understanding what we understand as a whole about the world and how it functions in the universe and that was really what i was interested in and that was when i realized that i was an atheist um and i was like oh my gosh that's what i am and then of course the internet happened and I really kept it to myself because it was still the stigma and the stereotypes were still there. 
Um, and so I didn't, I just kind of followed some pages. I believe that friendly atheist was, um, my very first atheist follow ever, which led to FFRF and actually, uh, Seth Andrews was another one, uh, the thinking atheist that got me too. And, um, Pendulette was one of my first atheist books I ever read. Um, God, no. Um, and actually you have the audible version of expose yourself, but in the print and the digital versions in the back, I list a bibliography, um, where I list, uh, Carl Sagan's, uh, Pendulette, a lady by the name of Mary Roach, uh, you know, Dawkins and Hitchens and, and books that I read. So, so just to kind of give people an example of things that I read that kind of led me to where I am. Uh, the Skeptics Guide to the um, Universe is one of my favorite ones too. Um, and they're not really atheists, but they're very, they're, it's a really good book to teach you critical thinking and the scientific method and how to ask questions. Um, to get around your biases and uh, logical fallacies and all those things. So that was really how I actually became involved. I didn't, um, I didn't really intend to be an advocate until I went to that convention and met my local um, chapter president, uh, Judy Saint. Actually, she's a contributing editor of Expose Yourself. Nice, yeah. nice. And so now, what have you been doing in terms of? uh activism you know or being an advocate um for skepticism and for critical thinking you know basically just being active online um writing more articles like i said i just wrote another article for um ffrf i have also met some other independent uh independent authors and so that has started to i'm working on a fiction project right now um so it may be that I will always be an advocate for atheism. Um, certainly, I want to promote the idea that it's okay to say that you're an atheist, that you're okay to question things, uh, which is really what my book is about. Um, it may be, however, this project turns out that I start, you know, moving in the direction of fiction. Um, but I think my main goal is to know that it's okay to say that you're an atheist. And I think that by me, even just being who I am, that I'm able to at least offer one more voice and say, Hey, you don't, you don't have to hide. You have a place to go. You know? Cause that was how I felt when I found, like I said, Hennett and Seth and you know people along those lines online was feeling like I wasn't by myself. I wasn't alone. It was okay to say that I don't believe and stuff that other people believe in because you can really get even even if it's just people that say you know god is energy or god is love or you know the universe this or karma you know if you say that you don't believe in anything um you know it can be lonely yeah it so. really can it really can it's interesting how our beliefs and things change over time as well um and how we can you know sort of change our minds about things and i think that's a feature not a bug i you know some people come down on you for that hypocrite you know well what about this what about that and you just go hey man I, you know one of the things about critical thinking is i get to change my mind I, I don't have to maintain fixed dedicated views on things and and stick with them just because i thought that when i was 20 in fact i think people who think the same things when they're 40 is when they were 20 are idiots i mean how could you possibly go through <laughs> you know half of your life think one thing and then go through a whole nother half of it 
and think the same damn things. You, you've had, <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, this is, this is crazy balls. I, my beliefs are, you know, I'm, I'm a very introspective person. I, I'm constantly examining my own thoughts, my own beliefs and ideas about things because, and from a critical eye and challenging them. And, and I know, you know, I, <laughs> I know some people would be like, no, you don't ever do that. But I, no, I do really. I do. <laughs> And I've changed all kinds of things. I, I look back at podcasts I did four years ago, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I was saying that. Because I've just changed, and that's okay. Do you see, are you, as a skeptic atheist now, are you open to the possibility that there could be more to life than what we currently are experiencing or sensing? And if so, what kind of... Uh, kind of things would, would get you thinking in that direction. And I'm not necessarily talking about just a God belief, because God is kind of this, this great, big, huge thought that everybody's kind of got their own ideas about. But even the idea of more to life, or maybe, you know, life is something different than what we understand it to be, or maybe, you know, where it comes from, stuff like that. I don't know. What do you, what do you, what do you think of about these things when you think about this? Well, this sometimes is a controversial term, although I don't understand why it's so controversial. Um, I consider myself to be an agnostic atheist. And one of the reasons is, is because agnosticism um, refers to uh, knowledge. Uh And I don't know everything. Um, I will likely never, ever know everything. Um, as it stands to the current evidence, I have no belief in God, which is what makes me an atheist. Um, I think always the most honest answer is I don't know. Um, and I want to learn. And I have actually a book on consciousness waiting on my bedstand um, because I'm very interested in the idea of consciousness, um, whether it goes outside, does it exist? outside of our bodies and our brains. Do I think that? I don't. I don't think that it does. I think there's no real evidence for that at all. Um, But yeah, I'm very curious about that. Um, I think it's extremely arrogant to ever have a lot of concrete ideas and beliefs about what we know about our world because we are always learning things. And that's really the coolest thing about science, I think in particular, is that it does change its ideas. It does change according to evidence and new learnings. And if you are not open to learn new things, you're, you know, you're, you're stuck where you're at. You're, you're never going to grow as a person. So I'm absolutely open to learn, um, to learn more. And I'm curious about, um, you know, what scientists and what other people are learning too. So yes, I am open to it. Do I hope? hope that when I die, I'm going to be a ghost and get to like haunt the world or going to go to some place where I'm going to see my mom again, or, you know, my cat from when I was 10, that would be fucking awesome. Do I think that's the case? Not particularly. Um, but that's, no, I, I, I think learning is growth. Um, and I think when you start to close your mind off, you, you stop from, from growing. Actually, I read a book. Um, I did an interview interview with him not too long ago, Brian Keene, he's a horror author, but he actually just wrote a book called The Triangle Belief and of Belief. And he talks about what you just mentioned, where what you believe when you're 20, as opposed to what you're 40. And he actually, he explains it as a triangle, um, basically starting, you know, as a kid, you believe in everything, you go up to the point where, you know, you're 
pretty much just materialistic and this is that. And then you kind of start coming down on the other side where you become more open to things that you may not um, understand yet. Uh, and that was very interesting, especially coming from somebody who's a fiction writer and also a nonfiction writer, which I didn't, I was unaware of. So I was really excited to read that um, of his because that's kind of where I'm at, where I was like, I don't know if I can write fiction. So that was a, that was a, that was a good place for me to, to start. Um, but yeah, no, we, we always need to keep learning. I think that's, I think that's important. I, I think so too. And I think so because I think that's where, you know, the basis of a changing belief would come from is the willingness to continue to receive new information and do something with it and modify existing beliefs as a result. This is just the formula practically of, of, of good thinking or, or, or critical thinking. Um, in fact, I'm even a little suspicious of people <laughs> in the atheist community who are like, no, it's science and science says there's nothing. And you just go, actually, science doesn't say that. You know, science doesn't really have a whole lot to say about that because we know science doesn't touch it. You, you, you can't go there. You know, so the, you know, even the militant ones on in, in this community, I go, mm, no, nah, I don't think so. There's a, there's a thing that happens that happened to me. And I, and I'm wondering, you know, if it's similar in your journey where you do get really curious about, okay, what do we know? What, what is this quantum physics all about? What, what is this science stuff all about? What, what is psychology know and not know? What is neuro, neuroscience? Where, where are we at? You hear about brain imaging, you hear about this and that, and you think they've got it all taped, and then you start looking into it, and you go, ah, no, there's an awful lot. It's almost like that curve. I don't know if it really is, an, is the same as the, the triangle thing, what I'm saying right now, but maybe I'm saying similar words of you, you get super curious about, okay, well, what do we know for sure? And you find out not much, yeah. you know, and it's a little bit of a rude awakening for me. And I've discussed this a little bit. I think uh, it was, it was very disappointing at first to learn that the bleeding edge of science is out in places where we're, we don't have answers to stuff that I really, really, really want answers to. And not just the big question of God. I mean, I'm talking about like, you know, where's consciousness coming from? You know, little questions like that. So I'm, you know, so you find out that we actually have so much yet to learn that the humanities is overall are just in their infancy. And anybody who thinks that psychology's got this all taped or, you know, uh, psychiatry or sociology or again, neuroscience. Nah, man, we're just getting started. And it opens up what, what, for, what happened for me was first an initial hit a brick wall of damn it. There aren't any certain answers here either. What the, what the hell? Because I came from a place of great certainty. And it became a habit to be that certain. And then, oh, yeah, no, you don't get that in science. Sorry. And very disappointing. But then right past that disappointment was the silver lining of, oh, wait a second. We're going to have a lot of fun trying to figure this stuff out. That's what we're going to do. You know, mm -hmm. and then it becomes an adventure. That's, That's been, exactly how I looked at it. Yeah, yeah. that that you too. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, and yeah. although when I was a kid, it was the certainty that I doubted that everybody was telling me, but this is it, and this is it, and I'm like, but how did you know that? Like, yes. how do you know that? Yes. 
And when I, as I started to get older, probably let's say 25, 30, and I really started, I had already kind of left religion behind. I mean, as an adolescent, I was like, well, this is ridiculous, obviously, the blood thing and what, you know, that was easy to let go of. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty easy to look at and go, come on, guys, are you kidding me right now? Yeah, it was like, no, okay. Um, right. So that was, that was pretty easy to let go of. But but it was, there were certain things that I thought that I was certain about. And as I got older and experienced death and loss and things like that and, and those questions, that was when I was like, well, no, you know what, I really, I want to know. And so I kind of, I think I went through probably some of the same journey that you did. Um as far as being curious and then it was like oh well there really aren't any answers and you do you go through that little bit of a grief period where it's like well god I really wanted to know I read a book called the science um science of the soul I think it was but it was about the search for the existence of a soul and when you realize that there's really nothing there um scientifically concrete to say that there is and that was how I, that's how, what led me into like quantum physics and things like that so i looked into things like um reincarnation and, and the proof for that and that's where mary roach's book uh spook came in because she delved into a lot of that and then why do people believe what they believe and, and all that kind of stuff but it was really it was the certainty that i grew up with in religion that was like there's nothing certain here how are you? You're so positive that this is the case, and yet it is so illogical and goes against everything that we actually know. How do you live in these? How do you compartmentalize the whole God and Son and blood and and death and torture thing with um, science? And so for me, the two were always like disconnected. But it was the certainty that kind of irritated me because how can you be so certain? But the certainty in the atheist community is, is along the same lines. There's, we know so little um, as opposed to, you know, what there is to know. Um, but like I said, am I, am I, uh, am I an atheist? Do I believe that there's a God? I don't. Um, if God were to come down and, you know, smack me on the ass, I mean, I, you know, I, I would have to change my mind. So but as it stands right now, I'm, I'm a pretty hardcore atheist. Um, but as far as being militant about it, uh, sometimes I get a little irritated when people put their faith in God and stop trying because they think, oh, well, this stuff is just going to happen to me or this was meant to be or there's some kind of path. That really bothers me because I think it limits people personally to uh, from achieving their goals. If you're looking, like the customer said, oh, well, you're going to find your path. There's a path for you out there. And I'm like, there is a path for me. But you know who's making that path? Me. I'm making that path. There's nobody, there's nobody, nobody's divined that out. That it, it's me that makes my path. And so people that are sitting, working a shitty job, not doing what they want to do because they think somehow some divine being is going to open up this opportunity for them that they just have to sit back and wait for. That's when I really kind of take issue with the idea of God and um, destiny and fate and those kinds of issues. Um, but that type of certainty definitely exists on the other side. Uh, you have to acknowledge if you're not a shithead that you don't know everything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think I've only been part of this world of the skeptic atheist community, right, for a few years. Uh, you know, I got out of Scientology in 2013, and basically that year is when I got into this. So seven years, right? 
And um, I think from what I've seen and heard over that time, that the community as a whole is more cognizant of that now. I think that I think when I first got out, Atheism Plus, I think, had just happened or just died or something. And, or was dying. It's, it was in his death throes, right? And w- deservedly so. And, uh, and there was a lot of railing and arguing in the community about things. And a lot of the hardcore guys, the like, you know, if you believe in God, you're a fucking idiot, right? Those guys, they kind of faded over the years. And one of them even like kind of rebranded a bit, you know, TJ, you know, the amazing atheist. Hardcore guy, right? Now he's more of uh, rebranded more as an edge lord than a than a hardcore atheist. Right now he just talks shit about everything, so because that's kind of where he comes from. Uh, but some of the other guys you don't really hear about a whole lot anymore, and I find that interesting. I think that this idea is permeating the community that we need to be a little bit more. You know, we don't have to curb what we think. And we don't really have to curb a whole lot of what we say, but we need to have a little bit of an attitude adjustment that we're part of the world too, and we have people to get along with. And these people are believers, and you can't just run around telling them all that they're a bunch of fucking morons because they have a belief that you can't disprove. So what are you doing? You know. And I get it. With all the things you just described, I agree completely. When they overstep, that's wrong too. When they're pushing too much, I, you know, I'll push back. I'll absolutely push back on that. But, um, but again, at the end of the day, I don't really care what's going on up here. I care what you do with it. And I think that that actually applies both ways. I think that applies in the atheist community as well as in the believer community. It does. And, you know, I definitely when I first um, became vocal about it, I was pretty harsh. Um, you know, I was pretty... Uh, I was definitely like, well, you're a dumbass if this is what you think. And I have softened up a little bit. Um, the more people I meet, uh, if only because some people do need to feel that somebody's watching out for them. They, they need, they, they need that comfort in their life. And if that doesn't permeate or it doesn't impede their progress, um, either in their personal lives or it doesn't inflict any harm on anybody else, then who am I? I don't care. I don't care who you believe in. If it makes you feel better, then that's good. You know, there's when my mom passed, um, I was jealous at one point um, of my siblings who believed that she was in heaven. And I didn't hold that belief. And I still don't hold that belief. Um do I hope that her consciousness lives on? God, that, yes. But that hope is pretty freaking tiny. I, I don't, I really don't believe that that is the truth. But I did see that they found comfort in that. So did I go around to my siblings or did I say to the priest when he's giving her her last rites, you know, you're full of shit? No. No, you don't do that. That's that's not what you do. Um, You know, did I get comfort from the priest? I did. I absolutely did holding his hand and, and doing what I knew that she wanted. Um, I did get comfort. Was he soothing and was he, you know, was he nice? And, and, and did he speak at her memorial for free? And, and yeah, I did find comfort in that. Do I believe in the supernatural element of it? I don't, but there was a certain comfort there and maybe it's cultural because that was how I grew up. 
and and I was not abused um, in any way, shape, or form by religion or Catholicism or anybody in that at all. Not at all. Other than being told I was going to hell, I do I do find that a little. That's good. I have a bit of an issue with that. <laughs> Telling me I was born a sinner—that's a bit of a sticking point. But but the trappings around it, people need that. And I think like when it comes to my neighbors, or it comes to you know other people that are religious, and they they use that as a force for good in their lives and a force to help other people. Cool with that. It's when they're you know they're actively hurting people and using God or supernatural things as a justification to harm other people. That's when it really becomes an issue. But, you know, yeah, no, I, I think it's arrogant one way or the other to, to try to say that, you know, something that, that we just, we just don't know. We just can't know for right now. Um, but like I said, do I believe in a God? I do not. I do not. I am still an atheist. So I'm still. Absolutely. And I'm, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to be the last person to try to talk you out of that. You and I are amazingly on the same page on things in terms of what we're talking about right now. Agnostic, atheist, 100%. And I've quit talking about it because it is controversial. People get pissed at you about it. And it's like, look, man, all I'm saying is I don't know. There shouldn't really be anything wrong with that. But there's this need that people have to have a position, to hold an opinion, to be certain about things. And they want you to be certain, too. And you kind of go, you know, it's I'm actually adjusting my head around the idea that it's okay to not be certain about something. And for me, that's progress. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's a thing I need to do. So don't get in my way, you know, like, let me have this. Um, and I also agree, you know, on that. In fact, the thing that the, the thing that first got me thinking in this direction was exactly what you just brought up. You know, am I going to go after an 80 year old, you know, grandmother, Catholic woman who you know, raised, does her rosary, whatever she's, you know, does her Hail Marys or whatever. I don't even know what to call them, but they, you know, am I going to go after her in the, in the, in the, in the twilight years of her life and try to strip her of the, you know, of beliefs that give her comfort and emotional support? <laughs> Why would I do that? That's crazy talk, you know? Uh, and that's what, and then I also realized the same thing applied with, um, People in drug recovery, people in alcohol recovery, sometimes, you know, they go to these these programs and they get a belief in a higher power, but it actually truly makes a positive impact in their life. And that's what that individual needs. And it's far from me to tell them, you don't need God in order to have morality, because that guy in this place at that time, that is what he needs. I'm not going to take that away from him. No way. Over time, maybe we can have conversations and fine. But I'm not going to get in that guy's face about that. If, if that belief is keeping him off drugs and he wants to be off drugs, who am I to get in the way of that? You know, let me. Oh, sorry. No, there's, no, no. Well, I, I actually there's a chapter called Some Strippers Need Jesus. And that is yeah. literally uh, what I talk about there as far as being able to create boundaries with yourself to where you can um, insulate yourself from other people's beliefs that they're destructive, but also be understanding if you. Have you know? Because I've worked with many girls that have been in positions where they need something, and if that handout happens to be religious and it isn't of the sort that was invading the clubs, and it is actual genuine help and it's helped them fuck it, then you know what I'm saying. If they're getting yeah. beat up or they're going to die of an overdose, by all means, you know, do whatever you need to to get out of there at, at that point. 
Yeah, exactly. I think what we're dealing with with that, you know, for those out there who who just can't imagine that anything I'm saying here right now makes any sense. Let me let me let me contextualize it a little bit further and and see what you think about this because I've never said any of this stuff out loud. I think it's cultural, and I think uh, I think that net that need that they have is is a cultural thing because you know it's not like nobody ever heard of Jesus until they went to AA. I mean, it, it pervades our entire culture. You you know who the guy is. You know what the basic belief system is. If you grow up in in a Western country, that's certainly a truth. I can't say the same for Eastern countries. I don't know. Um. So you already have this established idea of, of, of there's a hierarchy, there's a God, there's a Jesus. This is how it basically works. And I think that's why it becomes a go-to. Whereas it's true, you wouldn't have to have that belief to have a moral system. But if that's the, the cultural context in which you grew up, that's how you understand where morality comes from. And that's the context of your life. And it's going to take work to undo that. You know, it's not just a conversation. It's not just a social media argument. It's not just a screaming in the guy's face or a woman's face. You're an idiot. Yeah, how dare you? There's no evidence of what you believe. You're not going to get anywhere with any of that, you know? So I think it goes back actually to if we really want to deal with that, we have to deal with childhood indoctrination. And I think that's a place where I go into actually blatantly saying that I, I believe it's child abuse to not necessarily to inculcate a belief in a child because parents are going to do that no matter what I say or anybody else says about it. But this business of you're going to hell, Jesus camp, you know, anybody who doesn't believe what we believe is evil and the devil is in their head. I mean, this kind of stuff, this extreme nonsense, it's abuse. It's psychological abuse, not physical abuse. Unfortunately, these households often lead to physical abuse. And the physical abuse is even part of the dogma, you know, i.e. Bill Gothard or other Christian cultists, you know. So I, that's where I look at the source of that problem. I don't look at the individual believer and go, it's all about you. I think it's a much larger situation we're going to need to deal with. What do you well, think? and I think that it, when I personally came out to um, people in my family who have obviously known me my whole life, I'm a regular blood donor. I donate time, and I uh, I got fur yesterday though. Um, I've always acted on an ethical, moral ground. I always have. And when I told um, a couple of people in particular that I was an atheist, the first thing they say is, "Well, you're immoral, and you're a bad person." or you're wrong, or you're this. And it's like, but I haven't changed. That word didn't change who I am. And I've always been that way. You know, so when somebody says to me, well, how can you have any morals? I have the same morals that I've always had. And you thought that I was a moral person before, but now you don't think I'm a moral person. Um, and all of a sudden, I'm a bad person. But yet my actions haven't changed. Just identifying as an atheist didn't change who I am, but somehow you equated the two and now I'm bad and I'm a wrong person and I'm immoral. And it's, and that is where I take issue and, and have lost relationships over that in particular, because now you decide to shit on everything that I've done over my 40 years 
Um, and not saying that I'm any kind of saint or, you know, perfect person, obviously, you know, I've done some shitty things, but I do try to help people. And I do try to help people from a genuine point of just wanting to help whether the true definition of altruism exists or not. I still try to operate. I've always operated on those basics of humanism before I even knew what humanism was, but I was still an atheist. Um, and before I even knew what atheist was, I still acted that way. For somebody to all of a sudden now look at me like I'm a bad person because I don't believe in God is, um, you know, I've had to draw some lines there. Um, because that means that you aren't taking me in as a person. You're not looking at the whole person. Uh, yeah, I've done some crappy things, but I, I always try to do good when I can. And what I believe isn't relevant and if you can't separate the fact that i don't believe what you believe and now all of a sudden i'm a bad person you can't take the actions away from the beliefs I, you know that uh, like i said that's it's ruined some relationships for me it really has i hear you on that me too and, and that's and that's rough because you can't control other people and and what they're gonna how they're gonna react to you and stuff and sometimes you do have to do that i've had to do it many times I'm not big on getting insulted. I, I, you know, I got, I got some hair trigger buttons and, and it's just how it is. I, I ain't perfect. And I, I know that the things that I talk about, that I want people to be kind, I understand the world's a rough place, but you come at me and, you know, I, I, I got a fight or flight mechanism too. <laughs> so, you know, so that's going to happen. And, and on a longer term, too, you know, you get to choose which people you want in your life. You get to choose who you allow in your inner circle. Absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Not at all. Um, let me throw something else out at you in terms of uh, belief in all of this. Have you ever, um, you ever watched this show, The Good Place? No. It's worth watching. It's four seasons. Okay. It's on Netflix. Um, I'm pretty sure they'll have the fourth season up there before too long. Um, it, it just ended. It was that, that's the end of the show. The whole story arc is four seasons and it's about these people who go to heaven or the good place. They actually never use the word heaven or hell. They just talk about the good place and the bad place. Mm -hmm. And I learned at the very end of the show for me, my experience of watching it was that was a double entendre and I didn't get it till the very end. Mm -hmm. The good place, like being in a good place. Mm -hmm. I'm spoiling the shit out of it right now, but it's out there, so I don't care, right? My point is that <laughs> this show invited me to do something that in all the years that I was in Scientology and all the years since I left Scientology and have looked at other religions, no other group or, or thing has ever invited me to do this. And that is to actually seriously really consider what would life be like if we lived forever? What would, what would an eternal life look like if you, you know, you, you shed your mortal coil, right? You're pushing up the daisies and you go on to some other, you know, spiritual place. Well, you're still alive, right? And everybody in the show still, you know, has their bodies and all that. So they're in this place and they finally get around to dealing with this in the fourth season. After all the adventures and misadventures the characters go through, it is probably one of the best shows I have ever seen to discuss morality and critical thinking and skepticism their, their lessons are all throughout it was the first place i ever learned about the trolley problem 
things like that are presented as part of the plot of the show. It's very cleverly mm -hmm. written. But this business of inviting me to, in, to really look at how much of eternity could you deal with before you would absolutely positively be out of your mind with boredom? You know, and the, and I realized that for me, looking at it, you know, that it that as a human being, that, that we are human, we are not we like to think of ourselves as, you know, souls or spirits or whatever. And all those years I was in Scientology, I believed that I had led billions of years of lives, you know, and all this. But then I never really looked at what would that really look like? And. Once you do, you see that there's really no final destination there that is not 1,000% pure torture for you. Because the human experience is it's a very limited experience. And it made me realize that if there's an afterlife, which is truly supposed to be a good place, a blissful experience for eternity or something, we're going to have to stop being human to get there. And I just never even had that thought until somebody invited me to really look at it and think about it. And I wanted to throw that out at you because those are the kind of things that I just have a ball with now. Is, is, present, is somebody presenting ideas to me or inviting me to consider things that I've never thought of before, even if it's the most obvious thing and you know, it, it's right there in the middle of the room and you should have been thinking about it the whole time, but you just never did. What, what are you, <laughs> what's your response to that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, well, my first response is I've been looking for a new show to start. Like all my shows are over. Um, I, yeah, I think inherently you would have to stop being human. Um, but I think it's one of those things where if you're looking at your consciousness going on and you're looking at what goes on beyond it, um it may not actually be boring. Maybe it's not torture because who knows what, you know, like we were talking about where we don't know everything. Well, there could be an infinity of things to, to learn and not know. So maybe it wouldn't be boring. I mean, when I thought of immortality or living forever, I'm thinking like vampirism, right? You know, or like being a zombie. And I'm like, well, I think eventually that might suck, you know? Uh, getting back to Tom Cruise, you know, if it was Tom Cruise when he's like first, like he's the hot vampire, it's like, okay, I could do that forever. Maybe, you know, Brad Pitt's a little more my style, but, um, you know, then you see, and they start, you know, and he starts getting all fucked up and it's like, okay, well, this is kind of gross. And then I, of course me, I start wondering, well, if they don't have any blood, can they actually function in every way that I might want a Brad Pitt or a Tom Cruise to function. So, but you do think of immortality in those shows as a human, as a very humanistic thing. If I'm just consciousness floating, well, maybe I'm not going to have those physical wants or needs anymore. Maybe things are going to be different. Or there's, you know, there's the idea of consciousness going on and joining the larger consciousness, right? We're all one part of one big energy thing. So, um, I think it's hard to imagine because it's, it's, there's so much that doesn't, I think it's almost unfathomable. Um, I, I don't think it's possible to even think in those terms because the possibilities are literally infinite. Um, I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. 
I, yeah, so, yeah. So, so my long story short, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. You know, it's just, it's just fun ideas. It's just fun ideas, you know, oh, sure. and, sure. and I, I fall on the exact same place with God, actually. You know, when people, if you're going to have a logical discussion with me about God, we're really not going to be having much of a conversation because how could us, how could we possibly begin to understand an entity that could create all of this? I mean, where do we even begin to 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 have the gall to think that we're even the slightest bit capable of understanding a creature of such enormous power and immensity and who knows whatever else? I just I just can't even like imagine. Uh, to me, it seems that this whole creating you know God in man's image is the only choice we've got because. We are incapable of conceiving of infinity or eternity or, you know, this ultimate power sort of thing. And uh, and for me, the conversation kind of starts and stops right there. It, it's a very uninteresting conversation to me because of that, because I'm like, you know, it's like ants talking about whales or something like how are what are you talking about? How are you possibly going to going to have this conversation? You know, it's like asking a fish about the, the that classic thing you know, about, you know. How does, uh, how does it feel to be in the water? And the fish goes, what's water? You just don't even have the most basic concept of the most obvious parts about it. You know? That's I think the conversation as it relates to God and atheism, um, personally, I think the question of atheism is really more about, is there a supernatural deity that intervenes in earth and the universe and in people's personal lives. And I think that's really, for me personally, that's where I'm like, no, I have not seen that because if he is, then he's a total jerk. Um, He's not the epitome of morality or ethics. He's an ass. So I don't, um, for me, that's where the conversation starts. I can't begin to, and I was talking to somebody about um, deists people that think that there's because there's a lot of people from the enlightenment and things like that, that thought that maybe there was a deity or supernatural or something. We don't understand that did kick off the universe, start the big bang or have otherwise somehow create things that we won't like, you're right. We'd, we'd never be able to understand that. That conversation ends right there because it's beyond our even imagination because we're confined to our perception on earth. And as far as I'm concerned with the empirical evidence of, a deity interfering in or, you know, playing with our lives, there is no evidence there. And so that's why I would be comfortable calling myself an atheist. But yeah, when it gets to outside of that, and that's one of the reasons why I was looking at at quantum physics, astrophysics, and things like that, and and the universe and what we know about the universe, because I was actually trying to get a better understanding of what our understanding of what we understand of our world and, and life goes. But yeah, I agree with you. The conversation pretty much ends there because it's beyond our comprehension. We can't comprehend things. We have no idea beyond what we, what we, what we know. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I do think it's a fun exercise to engage with theists on these things, on the nature of their belief, because I'm curious about what they believe and how they came to those beliefs and why they might have some level of certainty about those beliefs, despite the fact that there's no evidence, right? You know, definition of faith. So I find that fascinating, mostly from a psychological perspective at this point, you know, and sociological, because I tend to go in that direction a lot. 
Um, but I, I find that's where I find it interesting. And I, and I like to engage with people from, from that point of view, if we can keep it at that kind of level and understand that we're not talking life and death. And, you know, at the end of this conversation, I'm not going to hell if I don't agree with you, you know, it doesn't, if we can have a conversation at that level, then, you know, I think it can be fun and productive and useful. Even, uh, the other ones I'm, you know, nah, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah fair enough. Well, Aaron, I, this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm really glad that I invited you onto my show. Was there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about or might have missed? I don't think so. I think you've been pretty thorough. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good, because I, I wanted to, I, you know, I, I find you an interesting person. I liked your book. I liked what you had to say. Uh, I'll have to check out your other books. I'll put links to these things in the show notes for people to check out. Um, is there any way for people to reach out to you if they want to contact you directly? Is it through your channel or or some other way? Uh, my website, AaronLewis.com. Uh, spelling is important because Aaron Lewis is also the lead singer of Stained. Um, but AaronLewis.com has a contact page. Uh, sometimes people will reach me through there. Um, I am, as of now, open to private messages on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, that is subject to change if things get weird um but they have not so far actually at all um Good. most people preface this with i hope you don't mind me messaging me you um and i actually don't unless you know like i said the very rare instances where it has been not okay um so yeah i'm pretty open as far as being contacted everything uh about me links to everything is is pretty much on my website uh aaronlewis.com so i'll I'll give you that uh, link if you want, but yeah, I'm fairly open. Like I said, until until that changes, for right now, I'm I'm definitely open and interested in the conversations. Awesome. Well, folks, you'll see the links on all of this down below in the description section on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. So check it out there, and if you have questions for her, you can uh, send them her way. Uh, once again, Aaron, thank you very much, and. Uh, Maybe we'll we'll do this again sometime. I hope so. I think I'd like that. Awesome. I think I would too. Um, okay, folks. Any questions, comments, or feedback, do leave it in the comments section. And I want to give a big, big, huge shout out to all of my Patreon supporters. Um, you know, you guys are awesome. Especially now. I know that it's difficult. Like, I really get it. <laughs> uh, and your support is awesome and amazing. And if any of you guys out there find my channel and my content interesting, informative, and maybe mildly entertaining, then consider supporting me through that channel or through uh, PayPal, you know, great for one-offs, send me some love, stuff like that. And the critical merchandise site link below, uh, where you can actually get things uh, and help support this channel. So check that out also. All right, folks, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.